Sounds like something's on. Making a noise anyway. Good morning. How are y'all this morning? It's a, kind of a wet day out there, but uh, we're here, and that's a, that's a good thing. <clears throat> we are uh, in the middle of our lesson number five on authority, and if you have your book, uh, you can go ahead and open it up to page 34. Now, if you were not here last week and did not get a book, I have a few more up here. Let's get those out. Uh, I ordered all they had, and they told me, said, they didn't know when to publish or would get any more. So this is, this is kind of it for right now. And uh, if you uh, left yours at home or whatever and you want to use one, that's okay, but please leave it and then bring yours back. <laughs> because like I said, we have a, a very limited, uh, limited supply there. <coughs> I don't know what's been hanging on to me since uh, the Monday before Christmas, but, uh, you know, feel like I'm getting better, but I've kind of hit a plateau, <laughs> and I'm kind of staying at where I am right now with the uh, sinus drainage and coughing stuff, so I apologize for that before we even get started, okay, because I know it's a, it can be a, be a distraction, and I hate that. Uh, we were get, uh, down to point five about feelings. We were talking about authority and how we need authority just in life in general and in religion in particular, and made the point that uh, if we don't have authority, it ends up being chaos, whether it's in our social and civil government or especially in religion also. Uh, we talked about do we use oral traditions or latter-day revelations and those type things for authority, and we said, no, we can't do that because if so, then uh, everybody's opinion is, is equal, and we can all have a God speaking to us in some form, and, and we think that's authority, or, or we can, uh, and everybody's opinion would be equal then. And then uh, we talked about should we accept what our fathers have done in the past as far as our ancestors. And again, uh, the, the point that he made there uh, that I thought was pretty good was, uh, you know, if you go back, I think he said seven generations, there's 128 ancestors there. Which one are you going to follow? And I doubt every one of them are following the same thing. So, you know, that's not a, a good guide in matters of religion either because we, we need to be sure we're doing what God said and not just what some ancestors said. And then we got down to the feelings part. I uh, want to spend a little more time on this this morning. We mentioned it last week, but we didn't spend a little uh, too much time on it. Again, feelings are kind of like a, the... Latter-day revelations and the oral traditions, you know, we all had different feelings. Some of us can be in one situation and have one feeling and somebody else have a totally different feeling. He makes the point about two men getting drunk. One of them may get melancholy, the other may get very happy. Well, you know, just different situations and, and different people had different feelings. And I think the best point that he has there is point two under uh, that uh, n- uh, number five, though. Your feelings can be based, and you can have feelings, based on false information. And you might even, I'm going to take this coat off again, I'm going to get hot out and already tell. Um, you might even think it's true and not know it's false. And he, he goes, uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. <coughs> it's talking about uh, when uh, Joseph's father thought he was, uh, he was dead. Now notice I said thought, because uh, if you know that story, and I'm sure you do, 
it, it didn't, uh, didn't happen quite the way he thought it did, did it? But let's start reading uh, in verse 23. Genesis 37, verse 23. And it came to pass when Joseph was coming to his brethren, they had stripped Joseph of his coat, of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into the pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Verse 25, and they sat down to eat bread, and lifted up their eyes, and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels, bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, and going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit it is it if we slay our brother? Of course, we know they were talking about killing him. And conceal his blood. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. Then there passed by the Midianites a merchant men, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit, and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. And Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes. And he returned to his brethren and said, The child is not, and I whither, uh, whither shall I go? And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in blood. And they sent and they uh, sent the coat of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know not whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, For I will go down to the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And he makes a point, and I think a good point. Would Jacob's mourning been any worse if that had been true? No. He thought it was true. He felt like it was true. He had those same feelings that he would have if Joseph had been killed by a wild beast because he thought that's what was going on. But it was a lie. It was not true. His feelings were the same though. And we have to be careful also because we can have feelings and those feelings can be based on lies. They can be based on something that's not true. Maybe something we've been taught or something somebody has said or something we've overheard. And those feelings may be feelings that we have, but they may not be based on fact. And so we, we have to base our, our ideas in religion, not on feelings, but on correct authority. And we're saying feelings would not be that. Number six, let your conscience be your guide. That's kind of like your feelings, isn't it? Well, a lot of that depends on uh, how your conscience has been trained, doesn't it? Your conscience can be trained. And if it's trained in the right way, then your conscience can be a good guide to you. Not the only thing you can have, but it can be a good guide. But... Is it going to be your sole authority in religion? I don't know. It can't be that. Again, it can be trained uh, in the wrong way. And you can think you're doing right, uh, but you're not doing right. Matter of fact, we know that Paul, he was trained as a Jew. He grew up as a Jew. That was his religion. But yet, when Christianity came along, he didn't follow that, that he should... Except God's Messiah. 
and he stayed with the Jewish religion, but he was in good conscience, what? We, we know that. He said, I, I've done everything in good conscience. And he had what? Had people put to death, you know, had gone and persecuted Christians, but all that was done in good conscience. Well, but his conscience was not the guide he should have been following, correct? He should have been following the Word of God. Of course, the Word of God would have led him to understand that Christ was the Messiah, and he should have been following that. So the conscience cannot be a, a good guide. You know, we have religious peoples today that are very conscientious. Matter of fact, some of them would give up their lives for their religion. We have... Uh, People of the Muslim religion that will strap bombs on themselves and blow themselves up in the name of their religion. Conscientiously, they think they're doing the right thing. Are they doing the right thing? No, but their conscience has been trained that way, has it not? To the point where they will do those type things in the name of religion. So we have to be careful that what we do in the name of religion is not guided just by conscience. It's got to be guided by something higher than that. Something that we know and can look at and can understand and can test. Now, point seven. He says, what about the majority? What if we just follow what the majority of people are doing? And I'm just going to read this straight out of the book because I can't remember all of it. Point one. He makes a good point. The majority where? Where are you going to find that majority? Well, it depends on where you are, right? Well, in Eastern Asia, Buddhism. Northern Africa, Mohammedism. You know, that's the Muslims. In Italy, the Roman, Roman Catholicism. In Utah, you're going to find more Mormons. Well, which one are you going to follow? Well, you're going to wait and you're going to change from location to location if you happen to move. You're going to follow the majority wherever you are. Well, follow the majority. As a matter of fact, uh, the Bible warns against that in Exodus 23 too. It's following the majority to do things. You don't do that. You don't follow the majority to do what you are going to do in religion. That's not supposed to be your authority or your guide. Uh, matter of fact, he makes another very strong point in Noah's day. <laughs> Have you, has there ever, ever been another situation where there was a bigger majority than that? How many souls were saved? Eight? Eight souls. That means ever how many people are on the world, and we don't know. But I bet you there's a whole lot more than eight. All those are lost. All those are gone. Okay? No one, his family, the only one saved. And of course, it's going to be that way with the judgment, too, we're told. Majority is going to be lost. We don't want to be in the majority. We want to be correct. Okay? We want to be following God in the correct manner. Not just the way the majority goes. Okay? And that's a good thing. If we can get the majority to do the right thing, that'd be awesome. But we better be sure the majority is doing the right thing and not just uh, following after whatever the crowd is doing because that is, that is a pretty strong thing for people to follow after whatever the crowd is doing and be accepted by society or by whatever people are doing around them and be part of that group. That's a very strong pull for people to be accepted by the majority. All right, get down to point eight. And that's where we've been heading the whole time. The Bible is our only reliable standard. Now think about that. It's the only reliable standard. When you're talking about 
in matters of religion. If we don't have a standard that we can all agree on, and we talk about many different things that many different people follow, how in the world are we ever going to understand what God wants us to do and do it and all do what God wants us to do in the same way God wants us to do? We won't, will we? If we follow any of these other things, we won't. If we get down to the Bible, then we have a standard. We have something we can go to, something we can read, something we can comprehend, something we can figure out, something we can test. If someone else comes to us with a different idea, then we can go to the Bible and say, is that idea right or wrong? Is that something I should accept or not accept? But without that standard then just about anything goes in religion. And that's where many, many people in the world are today. Just about anything goes. I've gotten away from testing things by the Word of God and making sure that what they do is following the Word of God. Now, go to 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. You probably know what it says. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It furnishes everything we need. We don't need anything but this. And that's the whole point. Once this was delivered to Christians by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the apostles after Christ was crucified, of course, it brought, him, uh, brought them to total remembrance of what Christ had taught them. It inspired them. They wrote down from, uh, from the Gospels through the epistles and those type things. And we have the Word of God. And we don't need to accept anything else beside that. Notice point two, 119.5. Uh, it says, the Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The only thing to be guided by is God's Word. That's the light. That's where we need to be. Matter of fact, if you remember uh, 1 John 1, 5 through 7, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, well, how are we going to know how to walk in the light? This is the light, right? If we walk in His Word and do what He says, then we'll be in the light. And we'll have forgiveness of those sins that we commit. Um, look at John twelve forty eight. John 12, 48. It says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. What are we going to be judged by on the last day when we stand before God? The word, right? We're going to be judged by the word. So if that's what we're going to be judged by, then we better be following we better be studying it. We better be knowing it and making sure that we are following it. And, you know, let's understand today we've got a lot of different religions uh, around us that call themselves following the Bible, Christian religions. Many denominations are, are saying they're following the Word. So it's important that we understand how to follow that Word. We're going to get into that just a, a little bit later on. Um, Look at point four under the Bible is our only authority. Turn, uh, look at Hebrews 8, 6 through 10. 
Hebrews 8, 6 through 10. Reads like this. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much more he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. It's talking about Christ, of course. For as that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with him, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, and I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. We're under a new covenant. Better than the old covenant. Different than the old covenant. The old covenant's taken out of the way. It was fulfilled through Christ. And now we're in the new covenant. Look at Colossians 2.14. Colossians 2.14. And it reads this way. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. That's talking about what Christ did when he fulfilled the old law. He took it out of the way. And that was fulfilled when he was nailed to that cross. And that old covenant's gone. And we are following a new covenant. Uh, Look at Hebrews 1. 1. It says, God who at sundry times and in divers matters spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, who, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Before Christ, God has sent a lot of prophets. And a lot of those prophets taught the word of God and tried to get God's people to follow. But at the last time, this final covenant, he sent his son. I want you to hear him. He said, I want you to hear my son. Look at uh, uh, Matthew 17. I think I've lost myself here. There it is. We're going to look at uh, Matthew 17. Verses 1 through 5. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into the high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as, uh, white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elias, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. <coughs> hear ye him. At the last, God wants us to hear his Son. Moses was great, delivered the law. Isaiah representing the prophets. But God said, Now, I want you to hear my Son. This is who I, I want you to hear. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 28 and 29, please. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. 
says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. You died under the Mosaic law by disobeying the law. We're under a better covenant now. Christ. What's going to happen to us if we despise that? If we are not willing to listen to the Son, much less the prophets, we won't even listen to the Son. Well, it says here, we're going to have more sore punishment than that. Okay, so we need to be sure that we're listening to God and listening to His Word and doing what He would have us to do. Comments, questions at this point? (coughs) I'm going to have to get a cough drop here. Sorry, I can't hear that well. That's true. We can know we have salvation, but the only way to know that is by what's written. Not, not by how you feel. You're exactly right. Any other thoughts or comments right now? Okay, I'm going to leave the book for a minute. And I'm going to go to an article I found. Uh, I've studied this several different ways. <coughs> and uh, I found this article written by uh, John Mitchell. You may or may not know him. This is on, uh, if you want to find a copy of this article. Matter of fact, he's got a four-part series on hermeneutics here, which is talking about interpreting the Bible. The last one, uh, number four, is on authority, which is what we're talking about right now. So I wanted to share some thoughts uh, that he had here also. Uh, But this is on uh, churchofchristarticles.com. There's a lot of good articles on there. Uh, but this one is part four, Accurate Hermeneutics, Interpreting the Bible Correctly. Part four, okay, and that is uh, by John Mitchell. And I thought it was interesting, I was looking for, for something to extend this lesson. Larry has the next lesson. I want to talk in particular, we talked about, we got to the point where the Bible is our authority. And that's what we need to be studying and understanding. Well, then how do we understand it? I already made the point that There are many denominations around here that study the Bible and come to all sorts of different conclusions. So how do we, as the Lord's church, study the Bible and understand things and apply it correctly? Uh, The first three parts of this, he goes through a lot of the stuff we've already been through about people follow their own feelings, uh, they, they just do what they think they want to do, those type things. Matter of fact, I believe uh, David the other night uh, covered this in a lesson he had about in today's society in particular. <coughs> There's actually no thing is absolute truth. You can have your own truth. I have my truth. You have your truth. And he covers that also. 
you know, you know, without an absolute truth, how in the world can we come to a conclusion about anything? And as David said in his lesson, he made the point in one of his articles too. If somebody ever says there's no such thing as absolute truth, I'll ask them, are you sure about that? Because if they're sure about that, then that's absolute truth. But there's no absolute truth. So they just contradicted their argument. Okay, if they're absolutely sure there's no absolute truth, then that's an absolute truth. So, you know, it, it just blows it out of the water. So, what we have to understand, there is an absolute truth. That absolute truth is the Bible. It's our only guide in religion. So if we're going to accept the Bible as our only guide in religion, then how do we approach it? How do we ascertain what God wants us to do? when we look at the Bible and study it. And one reason I really like this article, he started with exactly what the question we started with. He said, Jesus was asked, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? That's where we started with it. I said, well, this has got to be a good article because he, he started exactly where we started. And he went through and he talked about several things. Uh, see if I can get to the point where I was. Okay, of course, we understand in religion we have to understand there is authority. He goes to Colossians 3.17 to begin with. If, you have, if we haven't been there, we need to. And it reads, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Now think about that a minute. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, that's an action. Whatever you say, whatever you teach, or whatever you practice, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean, in the name of the Lord Jesus? By His authority. You know those old cop shows we used to watch? They beat on the door, open up in the name of the law, right? By the authority of the law, you're supposed to open that door. Well, in religious things, we're supposed to do what we do by the authority of the Lord Jesus. We just finished talking about that God has sent His Son here at the end, right? Giving Him all authority. Matter of fact, uh, He's given Him authority over everything in this world and as, as, as it pertains to religion. He starts out... Uh, let me see how much time i got. <laughs> I don't want to run out of time today. He, he looks at just the example of prayer. He said, you know, in Christian religion... We all agree we need to pray. He said, but how do we come up with that idea? How do we come up to the point we need to pray? Well, look at Colossians 4.2. Colossians 4.2. Paul says, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Well, according to Paul, we need to be praying, don't we? We need to be continuing in prayer. Um, look at Matthew 6.9. Matthew 6, 9 is what? What do we call Matthew 6, 9? It's the, known to the world as the Lord's Prayer, right? But to us, it's a model prayer. It's where Christ taught us how to pray, correct? Well, you know, it says, After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you forgive man not their trespasses, neither your father forgive your trespasses. That's not part of the prayer, but you need it in 13 there. But he's an example. So Paul tells us we're going to pray. Christ gave us an example of that. And then uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Look at the 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. It says, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So what do we see here? Some more examples of what to pray for, right? You know, Christ gave us a model prayer. Paul says we need to pray. And then he gives us some things we need to pray for. And his whole point is here that we go to the Bible to get our authority even for prayer. To have the authority to pray. To look at examples of what to pray for. The Bible gives us those type of things. Now, uh, look at 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I think we've already done that one time. Again, I'm having to get uh, back to my thing here. It said 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. His point here is, is the Word of God complete? Do we need anything else? We don't. Now, according to these scriptures, it said that, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Religiously speaking, we need to refer to the Bible to understand what God considers a good work, right? There are a lot of good things to do. We may consider them very good. But... If we're going to do something religiously, we need to consider what God says is a good work. And that's what he considers a good work is what's in his word, what he instructs us to do in religion. Um, you know, sometimes <coughs> we may think something's really good and it's a good work and something we ought to do. But religiously, maybe we ought not to include that because God did. And he says his thoughts are not our thoughts sometimes. So maybe what he considers a good work may be different from what we consider a good work. So we've got to study the Word of God in order to figure out what He wants us to do. Okay, now we're going to get down to the crux of the matter here. How do we come up and how do we figure out what God wants us to do? Uh, first of all, the Bible authorizes in several different ways. The first way is by command. Now you probably, this is probably something you've studied before, but we're going to go through it. Okay? The Bible authorizes by command. Now, uh, look at John 13. Just looking at uh, examples of things. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Is that a commandment? Christ said it is. That's a commandment. That's something we need to do. You know, that commandment's easier to follow on some folks than it is others. And we're commanded to love everybody. Okay, so we, we've got to love one another. Well, look at uh, Acts 2.38. Again, I know you know what it says, but it says, Then Peter said unto them, 
Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for these your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's a commandment. That's something we have to do. That's something we must do. Uh, look at Ephesians 5.18. And be not drunk with wine, where is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Is it right to be drunk with wine? No. It says be not drunk with wine. That's something you don't do. Okay? Uh, look at 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Got to abstain from fornication. Some God doesn't want you to do. That's a command. You're supposed to abstain from that. So that's one way in which the Bible authorizes. Some of the commands in the Bible are what we call general commands, okay? Uh, they're not limited in scope or in application. Look at Matthew 28, 19. Matthew 28, 19. Oh, Bible. There it is. We know this is the Great Commission. It says, Go ye therefore to teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. Want to zero in on the command to go. We call that a general command. What do we mean by general command? God didn't specify anything. He did say go. We don't have the option not to go. Because he said go. You know, I'm glad he didn't specify there. What if he had said, I want you to go by ship? We'd all be going by ship, wouldn't we? And nothing else. You know, they travel by ship. They travel by donkey, camel, all sorts of things back in that time. But is that the type of transportation we have today? Aren't you glad God let it wide open, you know? We can go in cars and airplanes and buses and bicycles and whatever we have as a means of transportation is wide open. Because God didn't specify there. He gave a general command to go. So any of the ways that we can go would not be going beyond what God said do. Because he didn't specify anything. And I keep talking about the word specify because that is the next type. You know, some of these commands are very specific in nature. Uh, Go back to Genesis and look at uh, chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. This is God's instruction to Noah about building the ark. God was very specific about that. He said, I want you to make this ark. And he specified a certain kind of wood. Matter of fact, he said, I want you to make this ark of gopher wood. Now, if he had just said wood, that would have been general, wouldn't it? Pretty general. I mean, you know, couldn't make it anything except wood. You couldn't, of course, Moses didn't have it, but you couldn't use plastic or aluminum or anything else back in that time. We've got aluminum boats now. Moses could not have used that. But God just didn't say wood, did he? He said gopher wood. Oh, what does that do to that command? It makes it very specific. If God takes a category of an item and specifies this one, then he doesn't have to give a long list of not this and not that and not this and not that. He doesn't have to do that. When he specifies this one, it takes everything else out of the way. God didn't have to say, I want you to make it out of gopher wood, but don't use pine and don't use oak and don't use that. He didn't have to do that, did he? He had to specify one thing. When God specifies that one thing, it leaves out everything else that's in that same category. Okay, so as long as Noah... 
made that ark out of gopher wood, he followed God's will. Notice, also, God gave him very specific instructions about how big to make it, how long and how wide, and the doors and the windows and that kind of thing. He did that. We know that Noah did what God wanted him to do because two different times in him making that, uh, I don't know why I thought we went to 1030 instead of 1015. I thought I had plenty of time. Anyway, uh, in making the ark, we know that uh, Noah did exactly what God wanted him to do, even down to specific commands. I'm going to start there next week, Larry, okay? Uh, I, I, I've got to finish this. The reason I want to finish this and I don't want to rush through it, authority, biblical authority, and where we get what we do in religion, so vitally important. Again, we have denominations that are studying from the same Bible we are. How do they reach different conclusions? Well, we need to understand how we reach conclusions in the Bible, okay? And if we can understand the biblical concept of authority and how to study the Bible and how to draw the right conclusion, then we'll help ourselves and then we can help others. Okay, so uh, I'll start there next week. Thank you all.